I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Quantum of Solace. It'd be a pretty cold bastard who didn't want revenge for the death of someone he loved. I don't think the dead care about vengeance. Business. The first thing you should know about us is that we have people everywhere. What the hell is this organization, Bond? How can they be everywhere and we know nothing about them? This is the world's most precious resource. We need to control as much of it as we can. Main check, Dominic Green. He's a person of extreme interest. We've already begun destabilizing the government. You know who Green is and you want to put us in bed with him. Yeah, you're right. We should just deal with nice people. Get in. All right. Careful with this one, Mr. Bond. She won't go to bed with you unless you give her something she really wants. I think someone wants to kill you. You two do make a charming couple, though. You're both, what's the expression? Damaged goods. Seems we're both using green to get to somewhere. You lost somebody? I did. You catch whoever did it? No. Not yet. Tell me when you do. I'd like to know how it feels. We need you to get rid of him. When you can't tell your friends from your enemies, it's time to go. Right now, I think you're the only person I can trust. James, move your ass. I wish I could set you free, but your prison is in there. You don't have to worry about me. Now, this one had its name derived from uh, Fleming's novel. Actually, it's a series of short stories uh, of For Your Eyes Only. And that is appropriate since the 1981 film version of For Your Eyes Only saw Roger Moore's Bond. And at this point, he was sandwiched between his last film's loopy sci-fi space laser tag that was copying Star Wars, aping Star Wars, Moonraker, and uh, the extremely colonial and languidly paced old people's action film Octopussy, which was signalling to the world that Bond needed refreshing. And this is, of course, new Bond, new blood, new everything. Uh, For Your Eyes Only not only contains a similar thread of a young woman, in this case named Melina, uh, trying to kill a dangerous bad guy as revenge for the death of her family, but it's a serious and more focused film, and one of the better examples from that era, much more like a Dalton film. There's a weird link now that I think about it. Um, Melina is Greek for honey, which was her being named after Honey Rider, mm -hmm. who was played by Ursula Andress in Dr. No, and Ursula Andress in the shitty 1967 psychedelic film Casino Royale, which was only a tiny bit based on the Fleming book, uh, was played by... Ursula Andress played Vesper. Ah, so there you go. Interesting link. Everything eats its own tail. Yes. The end. And I would. Yep. 
So in June 2007, Mark Forster was confirmed as the director. Now, I will say about Forster, he has directed one of my most loathed films of all time, and that is World War Z. And he didn't get on with Brad Pitt, who uh, wanted it to be probably more about him than it actually even was. Mm. Where it was basically just Brad Pitt plays zombie Jesus. Um, I... I uh, my grievance with this film uh, is is long documented. We've never actually done a show on it. I feel like we maybe should. Well, uh, no, it would just be you screaming into the mic. No, 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 no. <laughs> but the, the short of it is, uh, if you go all the way back and listen to one of the first shows I ever recorded on my own um, podcaster, uh, was on uh, the Zombie Survival Guide followed by World War Z, uh, both of which written by Max Brooks, uh, were instrumental in my own writing, as in at least it gave me the framework of seriousness and grounding in reality for the cartographer's handbook. And the movie of World War Z was not. It was a PG-13 rated fast zombie flick where Brad Pitt was the most important dude in the world. And it wasn't about the world all coming together. It was about Brad Pitt. And I loathe that film because it's so mediocre that it... it and yet, at the same time, it was popular enough that it basically killed all possible chances of there being a World War Z that actually felt like World War Z. And I was like, well, maybe we'll come back a few years later, like people have forgotten that, and do like a... What it really needs is a Netflix show. You know, a long-form, like a guy going around the world interviewing people. Um, you get reconstructions of those situations, or flashbacks to to what they've gone through. But an ensemble piece, a giant ensemble piece, uh, examining different cultures. I feel like now we've almost passed it, though, because we've just experienced a, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and now Max Brooks's writing actually makes us look better than we are. <laughs> So we lost that opportunity, but World War Z, especially the complete audiobook, if you can find the one which has Nathan Fillion in it, the complete one is fantastic. There's another version out there which is just like narrated by other people, but um, yeah, it's it's the one with like Carl Reiner and Rob Reiner and Simon Pegg, and uh, it's, it's fantastic and about the best version of it we're going to get and inspired me to make New Century. Now, Mark Forster directed that. From the looks of things, Brad Pitt's issue with it was actually the opposite. He, he really, really liked, liked Mark Forster. Oh, right. And wanted and was excited to do the film because he thought it was oh, going right. to be about this geopolitical thing. Ah. And that all kind of disappeared to make the story that they ended up making. More about zombie Jesus. Okay, yeah. then. Well, it was terrible. Uh, I, I don't want to hold it against Mark Forster because ultimately a lot of fingers were in that pie. Mm. Honestly, I don't feel like the direction is what's at, what's at fault in Quantum of Solace. They were up against it because it was during the writer's strike. And the editing is some of the most needlessly shocking that I've ever seen. We'll go into that in a bit. But uh, Forster was surprised that he was approached for the job in uh, 2007, stating that he was not a big Bond fan and uh, said that he would not have accepted had he not seen Casino Royale, which he felt had humanised Bond. Although he did find the 144-minute runtime a little long and he wanted his follow-up to be tight and fast, like a bullet. Well, it is that, Mark! So, 
Could it possibly be that he filmed 144 minutes worth of footage and then said, now Edit put it down. down to 120, <laughs> and they said, how are we going to do that? 120? Part? You're having a laugh. It's an hour and 45 minutes. It's by far the shortest Bond film. Okay. So, yeah, if they just went, like, let's take out every third frame, that'll narrow it down a bit. <laughs> it's not how you do it. No, but that would explain it, wouldn't it? <laughs> Maybe. That is kind of what it looks like. Yeah. It does feel like, this scene's dying, move it. It's like, it's, it's just Bond walking across a room and talking to M. It doesn't have to be shot like a fucking action scene. Anyway, it's not, it's not shot. It's edited like an action scene. And again, these editors have done fantastic films. We'll get to that in a minute. This was the last Bond score for David Arnold. He began with Tomorrow Never Dies, then The World Is Not Enough, then Die Another Day, then Casino Royale. Finally, with Quantum of Solace, Skyfall and Spectre, being Sam Mendes films, were both Thomas Newman, who works in close collaboration with him. And amazingly for me, I found this out today, No Time to Die is Hans Zimmer. But because David Arnold occupied a space between 1997 and 2008, that 11-year period, that made him the sound of James Bond. The classy, orchestral, bombast, my favorite moments of creeping sadness and melancholy, but in this especially, nerve-tightening tension and strings, followed by explosive flourishes of bombast. Taking a course away from the usual Bond villains, uh, Forster rejected any grotesque appearances for the character of Dominic Green to emphasise the hidden and secret nature of the film's contemporary villains. So he looks, you know, conventionally attractive-ish. Mm. He is kind of slimy and weasel. I mean, he's he's not. He's not in the slightest bit conventionally attractive. He's <sighs> I was short. trying to be nice to he's Matthew w- Almeriac. No, 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 I know. I didn't realise you hated him. I know what you're driving at. The point is they made him look normal. He's short, he's weaselly, he looks like the kind of person that you could argue into a corner at a party. He's short, he's weaselly, he murdered Hamlet's dad, Dominic. (laughs) Uh, The film was also marked by its frequent depictions of violence, with a 2012 study by the University of Otog in New Zealand finding it to be the most violent film in the franchise. No shit. Whereas Dr. No featured 109 trivial or severely violent acts. That's still a lot, by the way. (laughs) Trivial or severely violent. It feels like there's quite a wide gulf in between those two. BBFC, (laughs) PG. PG for that one, PG for that one, PG for that one. Was this a sliding scale between trivial and... Uh, it was illustrating, like, obviously going starting with Doctor No, which is one of the least eventful of the, the Bond films, mm. and more kind of just like, well, this is Bond. Here he is checking into a hotel room. We're going to play the Bond theme when he does anything. Like he opens a can of beer, and it's like down in one, down in one. That's a different energy to us to this one from the Casino I mean, we've just seen fucking Quarter of Solace. We're like, (laughs) (laughs) 
It's like we've been get surfed through the <laughs> Mark Foster's <laughs> grabbed us by the shoulders and run us through the movie as fast as he possibly can. <laughs> okay. A scant 109 trivial or severely violent. I love the juxtaposition of trivial or severely violent. Yeah, that's what I mean. Cordoba Solis has a count of 250. The most depictions of violence in any Bond film. I imagine them sitting there with a clicker going click, 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 click. <laughs> oh, that's an action scene. He's talking to Judy Dench. Click, click, <laughs> click. How is he doing this? Click. Like, he just killed a man while talking to Judy Dench. You can't do violent stuff while Queen Dench is in the room. It's just not allowed. Drinking a beer, click, click. How? <laughs> anyway, if, if he's drinking a beer, better be Heineken. Oh, yes. Heineken have deep pockets and they definitely gave a large amount of money for, not this, but Skyfall. Like, you remember when he's like, he's drinking a Heine with a scorpion on his hand? Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> so Dominic Green, uh, the actor, was uh, Matthew Almeriak. Um, he modelled his performance on the smile of Tony Blair and the craziness of Sarkozy, the latter of whom he called the worst villain that we, the French, have ever had. He walks around thinking he's in a Bond film. He later claimed this was not a, cri a criticism of either politician. One assumes after he got a visit in the middle of the night by the Stasi. <laughs> But rather an example of how a politician relates, uh, sorry, relies on performance instead of a genuine policy to win power. Mm. Well, that was rather prescient. Well, I, I would say that's a, a rather astute observation of Tony Blair, to be fair. And uh, did we see a thing where he was portrayed as the Cheshire Cat and the grin was all there was? No. Um, however, he was obviously the basis for the smiler in Transmetropolitan. Yes. This smiling fuck who actually just hated people. Yeah. Um, Sarkozy is a better actor than his presidential opponent. Segaline um, <laughs> Royal, that's all, he explained. Uh, so I just want to clear that one up. <laughs> He's not a psychopath. Um, Almirak and Forster uh, uh, reconceived the character who was supposed to have a special skill in the script um, to someone who just uses pure animal instinct when fighting Bond in the climax. All right. Mm. Bruno Gans was also considered for the part, but Forster decided Almirak gave the character a pitiful quality. He does that, yes. And, hmm. and I have to say, for somebody whose ultimate plan is basically be a Morton Joe, yeah. he, is a, he does actually come off as vaguely sympathetic. Does he? Well, not, all right, not Pitiful, yes, but yeah, not sympathetic. Not sympathetic, yeah. Like, you think he's a, like a, a, a little creep. Hmm. But um, that's not really an achievement. It just yeah. it makes you feel like wow, someone that like he's Mitch McConnell, like this little fucking chinless wanker. Yeah, and you're like you've hurt you've so got, many people. You've got no power in you whatsoever. What the hell are you doing here? And yet you hurt so many people. Yeah. <clears throat> we, Sharon and I, never mentioned the sheer volume of product placement in Casino Royale. A ton of Sony Vio products phones, laptops, all kinds of cars, drinks, and of course, our favourite line, that's a nice watch, Rolex Omega. But that's the thing, you're doing that, you're doing the gestures, he never shows it, he keeps his hand under the table, you don't see the watch. I know, but it's pretty crass. It is, yes. It's like, that's a nice watch, Rolex Flick Flack. That'll only work for you if you're 42 years old. <laughs> 
I'm 42 years old and I don't get it. You don't know about Flip Flack? They were Swiss made. Bond's mum's Swiss. Oh, okay. So is Mark Forster. Racist. I don't know. <laughs> Watch bra- I Okay, I know Swatch. Okay. That's about it. I'm poor. Returning. <laughs> Flick Flack. Time for a new generation. Shortly after I got my Flick Flack, my life changed. Flick 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 Flack. Flick Flack. The Swiss teaching watch. <laughs> Returning product placement partners from Casino Royale included Ford, Heineken, Air, ah, Schmernoff, Omega, Virgin Atlantic and Sony Ericsson. A reported £50 million was earned in product placement. You say earned. I think just like, sweat, like you know when they like get all the chips off the table? Mm. Like that's, that's the amount of earned it is. I, well, see, I wonder about this because... Because the product placement is, is gambling that this will pay off and well, people will pay this much right. money in buying new watches. The, like if they sell three Omega watches, that's the $50 million. The product pounds. placement income for a film is usually like a drop in the ocean of the advertising budget of the film, Mm -hmm. correct? Mm. I don't want to touch this until we know the numbers. Let's just not make sweeping statements. Fair enough. Uh, And uh, that £50 million tops the Bond film's record of £44 million for Die Another Day, which felt very advertising-y. The 2009 Ford car is driven by Camille in the film. Avon created a fragrance called Bond Girl 007 with Gemma Arterton as the face of that product. Coca-Cola became a promotional partner, rebranding Coke Zero as Coke 007. (sighs) There is a certain level of crapulence of Mm. getting Ford car and Avon on board. It's like, these are not the big boys. <laughs> the Avon ladies come round. <laughs> Bond girl. That said, Gemma Arterton does talk very much like an Avon lady. Yeah, so does. that kind of works. A tie-in advert featuring the orchestral element of uh, Another Way to Die in the, film's co- in the film. Coca-Cola is briefly seen being served at Dominic Green's party. Sony held a competition mission for a million, enabling registered players to use their products to complete certain tasks. Each completed mission gave consumers a chance to win $1 million and a trip to a top-secret location. <laughs> that, that top-secret location could just be a ditch at Elstree. Yes, this is true. But see, I think there is a certain degree of trading off that goes on Mm -hmm. with this because the products get their advertising in the film and the film gets advertising done by the uh, manufacturers of the product. Yeah. It's a a you scratch my back and we'll scratch yours. It's a a mutually beneficial arrangement. Yeah. And it's been around for a long, long time. Oh, yes. But the Bond series has always been kind of like a flashy... it's, It's kind of a lad's mag. It was always, like in the 60s, it was, you're never going to see Tunisia. Mm. But check this out. Yeah. We've got well, Tunisia. We, we fly our actor to Tunisia and we sort of like take you there. It's kind of like a, a tourism thing for folks in the uh, cinema. Yeah, well, it's an, an advancement of the studio movies of the 30s and 40s. Yeah. And they had like cigarettes being smoked by the actors mm. all the time. Gemma Arterton played Agent Fields. Her full name, Strawberry Fields, is never actually uttered on screen. Uh, It's in the credits, though. Mm. Uh, Robert A. Kaplan suggests that this is a conscious effort to portray a woman whose character attributes are neither undermined nor compromised by her name, even though her name may have sexual overtones reminiscent of earlier Bond girls. In August 2018, so basically, we give you a name that basically is rather like, lovely girl, tastes 
like strawberries. But also she was named after a Beatles song, which suggests her parents were hippies. Hmm. Arterton, in 2018, wrote a short story titled Woke Women, based on the character. Neat. Moving away from... Uh, like, they, they made the gag Stephanie Broadchest mm. in uh, uh, Casino Royale. Yeah. As a kind of... Well, very specifically, while they were trying to take influence from Bourne, they were also trying to make it Austin Powers proof. Yes. So that the things they said and did could no longer be lampooned by the Austin Powers series, which at the time had only just kind of finished. Yeah, well, I think there's a, there's a very definite... They are walking a bit of a tightrope because in Casino Royale and in this, they are taking the Bond girl template and doing something slightly different with it. Yeah. Like Solange in Casino Royale, as we said, is is much more, she has much more emotional depth than uh, the average villain's mole that's only there for a scene or two and then to get off. She certainly, like I say, expressed uh, um, a depth with her performance that we wouldn't often expect. Absolutely. Uh, Vesper is very different from the average Bond girl because of the sheer tragedy that she carries with her. Mm-hmm. Um, Fields, what I really liked about her is the fact that, the, again, there's, there's storytelling that doesn't come with exposition. She's, she's new. She's fairly new to the job. She's got her ideas about what the rules constitute and she doesn't bend them. She does what she's supposed to do. And that's more character than you would normally get in a Bond girl who was there for to be there for a couple of scenes and then die. Yeah. And the, the way that she is killed is obviously a reference back to uh, Goldfinger, except it's done in such a tragic way that it's presented without any hint of um, salaciousness or, or titillation. Yeah. And again, Bond seems to kind of turn a blind eye to another dead girl. Mm. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't say blind eye. The way he reacts... Like, there's there's a shaking. Oh, yeah. He's like... And he internalises it, definitely, yeah. considering what he does with Green. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, as we've already said, and we'll obviously go into later, Camille is very different from the, the standard, albeit mm-hmm. that they have... She is riffing on Melina. This makes me feel like uh, in the original Goldfinger, as one of the uh, 110 uh, casual acts of violence... Um, Bond should have given uh, Auric the old Viserys, like, crown of gold. Mm. Like, you like gold? Well, have all the gold in the world! Dump, mm. screaming, pig in a war, <laughs> out the plane you go. <laughs> because Bond plays it real, this is Mark Forster on the uh, political landscape in the film. Because Bond plays it real, I thought the political circumstances should be real too. Even though Bond shouldn't be a political film. I take massive issue with that as a a statement. Bond's always been political in that he preserves the status quo. He's fucking right wing. He's an instrument of governmental politics. Yeah. But that's what not being political is, preserving the status quo. Yeah. what, What, you want to be a secret agent, but you don't want to be political. I think you might be in the wrong job. Yeah. Uh, the um, one of the fi- uh, ministers that M talks to says, "Look, if we didn't deal with people who were bad guys, we wouldn't have many people to deal with, would we?" And it's like, uh, Mikey Newman said something fucking fascinating the other day uh, about uh, Frank Herbert, the writer of Dune, who considered that uh, corruption in politics is a naturally occurring phenomenon and should be taken and understood as the default and that any politician who actually wants to serve the people or serve for altruistic reasons is the anomaly. 
I have not got the time to read all the Dune books, but I'm hoping that the uh, Denis Villeneuve film really kind of sells that. Mm, Power corrupts. Yeah. And because so much of politics is uh, deals done in back rooms that people don't see, it has much more opportunity to corrupt. Forster goes on, I thought the more political I make it, the more real it feels, not just with Bolivia, but what's happening in Haiti, but with all these corporations like Shell and Chevron saying that they're green because it's so fashionable to be green. During the Cold War, everything was very clear, the good guys and the bad guys. And today there's much overlapping of good and bad. It isn't as morally distinct because we all have both elements in us. Yes, but I'll refer you back to what Frank Herbert said about politicians, which also goes for big business. Yeah. Also, the one of the main reasons why it seemed nice and cut and dry during the Cold War was that... Uh, we were ignorant as fuck. Yeah. And everything was kept secret. And everything was presented in a sense of, there's the good guys and the bad guys. It is now. Because they're it's selling just, an image. It's LA Confidential. Absolutely. It, but now, people can see through it. Yeah. And so now the only way to basically preserve the status quo of constant corruption is bombard everyone with information Absolutely. so that you get bullshit in so much, like, like raw sewage fired at you that you can't actually pass out the, like, the average person just gets overwhelmed with the over amount of information and goes, oh, fuck it, when's Dancing with the Stars on? Mm. The uh, the political real world threads, by the way, I did wonder at one point. There's there's lots going on here with regards to eyes. Mm. Oh yeah. There's there's you know the whole we have eyes everywhere and um, the thing about the CIA and we look the other way and then when they go to the opera they has that massive eye that's part of the the set. Um, and I did wonder whether this was a reference to the Five Eyes, which is uh, an intelligence alliance between the US, the UK, Australia, New Zealand and Canada. Yeah. Honestly, it feels like that um, That there was an intention to put the eyes in there. That mm. that giant eye was there. Yeah. And the whole, like, whenever they're discussing anybody, they have these big screens come up with... Um, mm pictures and files and obviously it's all there to make it more visually interesting because somebody just reading a note is not visually interesting even just the interface they have like low res stark tech like so they put a a digital representation of something on a board and then expand it and then they get all the information from that and all the information is passed out in this interface you don't really notice it when watching the film if you play the activision video game all the scenes in between the levels Mm. are given to you as bond effectively looking at his cell phone getting the information from m and she's sort of throws up characters and it's like oh shit so this is like really just the surveillance Mm. is manifesting itself through all of this like here is a person here is the information on them yeah there's quite a nice touch with that actually when bond calls m in the office and he's asking if they've got any information on dominic green when he spells out his surname you can see dominic green's name is appearing as bond speaks Mm -hmm. as if the the system is hearing him and and getting the type and when he goes to say double E, it flashes up with a W and then changes it to a to EE. Nice. That's very subtle. I did not even see that in my edit. I am fake. I am flack. We'll show you all how to tell the time. Time to roll away and start to fade. Flick the Swiss watch for children.
Forster noted that a running theme in his films was emotionally repressed protagonists, because he did Finding Neverland as well, and the uh, theme of the picture would be Bond learning to trust after feeling betrayed by Vesper. Uh, Forster said that he created the Camille character as a strong female counterpart to Bond rather than a casual love interest. She openly shows emotions similar to those which Bond experiences, but is unable to express himself. Forster wanted the action sequences, you'll like this, Forster wanted the action sequences to be based around the four classical elements of earth, water, air, and fire. Nice. Did you know that now? I did not. When no. They, it's when they're running under the uh, ground underneath that horse race. That's just like there's earth all over the place in that. And they're running on earthenware tiles on the uh, rooftop. Um, water's the uh, boat sequence. Air, when they're doing the dogfight with the two planes. Mm-hmm. And fire, the entire hotel. is. It's, it's more fire than hotel by the end. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. The dis- it was going to be in the Swiss Alps, but Forster was like, no, I want fire. <laughs> Put it in the desert. <laughs> the decision to homage the murder of Joe Masterson in Goldfinger came about as Forster wanted to show uh, that oil had replaced gold as the most precious material. Uh, the producers rejected Haggis's idea that Vesper Lynn had a child because Bond was an orphan, and once he finds the kid, Bond can't just leave the kid. I like the fact that the producers thought that hard, mm. and they were like, Bond is going to be like, right, immediately, I'm going to look after you for the rest of your life, mm. and then we're going to have to fucking kill a kid in the third yeah. film. There is a thread of that, though, because his relationship with Camille does actually end up being quite paternal. He's, She is... Yes, there's a little bit of attraction there, but the the key that causes them to interact with each other is that he does take responsibility for her, but not in a way that leaves him um, having to throw his emotional defences back up again, which if he'd slept with her, he might have ended up doing exactly the same thing. Or she'd just end up dead. Yeah. Um, The water supply issue in Bolivia was the main theme with the story based on the uh, Cochabamba water revolt. See, the oil is almost a misdirect because uh, they're all talking about drilling for oil in the desert, but it turns out to be water. As Sharon said, uh, he is a Morton Joe. He's trying to control the water in Bolivia, which is a pretty far-reaching plot. Mm. Well, it's it's a... There are links with corporations trying to control oil supply because ultimately the the search for oil is not simply so that you can sell it all and get money for it. Mm. It's about drip feeding it out to the world. If you can if you own the source of that that particular resource, then you control the supply of it and how fast it goes out and that therefore controls what the prices are. The the supply of oil to the world is artificially restricted yeah. during times when the prices drop too low. And uh, one of the writers, I haven't got it here in front of me, uh, did say that that while oil is a uh, finite resource, water is also one of those things we don't think about because we consider it to be an essential. Mm. But it's very prescient because in 40 years' time, unless we've really fixed shit, clean water is going to be hard to come by. And that's the difference. Water is a replenishable resource. Clean water that people can drink and getting it out to the areas where people are, that's the bit that they're going to have control of. But we want to frack! It poisons the water table. It ruins everything. But we want to frack! 
According to a December 2011 interview with Craig, uh, we had a bare bones, well, this is Craig speaking, we had a bare bones of a script, and then there was the writer's strike, and there was nothing we could do. From the sounds of it, they were kind of trying to rush this film out, and then they had to delay it. Like, in early 2007, everyone was sort of signed on. I think they were trying to go for a December release for exactly the reasons I said. 007, the year of 007. Mm. And they ended up delaying it for, like, nearly an extra year. Um for reasons where it, it they didn't want to clash with a Harry Potter or something like that. Well, the fact that the storyline, it, it almost picks up immediately after the end of um, Casino Royale. We had the bare bones of a script and then there was a writer's strike and there was nothing we could do. We, uh, we couldn't employ a writer to finish it. And I said to myself, never again, but who knows? There was me trying to rewrite scenes and a writer, I am not. He said that he and Forster were the only ones allowed to do it. The rule was that you couldn't employ anyone as a writer, but the actor and director could work on scenes together. So basically, by some fucking loophole, it would be like saying, well, if I have to do a scene and I'm trying to read this script and I say to Mark, how about if I say it like this, I'm legally allowed to do that. Mm. Well, effectively, then, that's the director and the actor improvising a scene together and they just happen to write it yeah. down so that later on they can do the same thing again. For a short while, the writer's strike had a really fucking terrible effect on on uh, movies and TV. Like, there was a really lasting knock-on effect as TV show seasons were cut short with reduced episode counts. A lot of people's careers had to go on pause. And films like Transformers 2 got made with barely a script to be seen. And they made loads of money. And for a brief while, the entertainment industry went, we don't even need writers. And they were teetering on that conclusion anyway. Luckily. Hence the reason for the strike. Luckily, they sorted their shit out. The past decade, the 2010s, we've had some fucking amazing films. I won't go into them. Because I will save this for a response to the time when someone says, all that comes out now is superhero movies. I'll go, really? Cracks fingers. Cracks knuckles. And then I'll just reel off everything that's happened since Avengers came out that is nothing to do with Marvel and nothing to do with DC, nothing to do with X-Men, not a cape in sight. We've had some fantastic films and fantastic TV. Our show has had plenty to chew through that came out in the cinema. Specifically, and notably, running parallel with us, the stuff passed off as popcorn and blockbusters has had more and more depth and more for us to get our teeth into. Mm-hmm, certainly has. As I said before, this is the first ever true dedicated sequel to a Bond film. After On Her Majesty's Secret Service, when they switched back from George Lazenby to Sean Connery, the beginning of the next film, You Only Live Twice, he's on the run, trying to find Blofeld, trying to get revenge for killing his wife. And he finds him and kills him, turns out to be his duplicate. But basically, that's the revenge. So that opening sequence before Nancy Sinatra starts up with her lovely song. That's his, Sean Connery's Quantum of Solace. But the way it's presented is like, okay, your cold open is, we're really sorry we did that and tried to give Bond a background. Let's walk all of that back, shall we? You know what? 
I've just confused it. It wasn't You Only Live Twice, it's Diamonds Are Forever. You Only Live Twice at the beginning, Bond gets shot while he's uh, up in, in a foldy beddy thing. Oh, okay. Diamonds Are Forever is... because You know why? It's because fucking... Char- it's just a jump to the left. Charles Gray plays that guy who gets stabbed in the back in You Only Live Twice, who ends up playing Blofeld and Blofeld's double in Diamonds Are Forever. Terrible Connery film, terrible Bond film, dismal way to end his series. But yeah, this is the first proper sequel, and I think from the sounds of it... It was maybe going to be more and less of a, like, having direct links. Mm. But because they were so restricted and because they had to keep it so focused on what Bond was directly doing immediately afterwards, it followed on from... It starts moments after Casino Royale. So they really are a duo. That's why we covered them both in a row. I mentioned in the Casino Royale show that I'd re-edited this one. It was a very subtle re-edit, if you watch it, having not seen the film for years. Sharon couldn't really tell me what had changed, apart from a couple of overt things. This film has always bothered me. The editors were Matt Chess and Richard Pearson, and both of them have edited at least good films. Matt Chess edited Finding Neverland, The Kite Runner, World War Z, Money Monster, Christopher Robin. These are all acceptable films, but Richard Pearson, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, but also with Roger Barton and Bob Doucet. Uh, He also edited the Joss Whedon version of Justice League, which means he had a hell of a job on his hand there. Wonder Woman 1984, but also Kong Skull Island. Maleficent, that's an excellent film, with Chris Lebenson accompanying him there. Iron Man 2 with Dan Lebenthal. United 93, Paul Greengrass film with Claire Douglas and Christopher Rouse. The Bourne Supremacy, the exact kind of film this is trying to be, with Steven Weisberg. Bowfinger and Muppets from Space, (laughs) with Michael A. Stevenson accompanying him. I don't know exactly what the design ethic was, but the problem is, and even Roger Moore commented on this, you lose all sense of space because all these shots are coming at you so fast. So you're watching a car chase and it goes cut, 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 cut. And you see the car from the front, inside the car, to the left of the car, from the cars following him, you get Bond's face. Then you get the guy who's about to crash into him in just a regular truck. And it's happening so fast that... um. It does induce powerful feelings, but I don't think necessarily what Forster was really going for. There's a point in the early car chase, which is not a bad car chase. It's just, it's it's achieving the wrong effect at times. When the, the a camera inside a car slams into the front of a truck, that's you're kind of boxed in at that point. Like there's traffic going by on the right. And it's just this like one second shot. And it's boom, like really jarring and I had been in a truck car collision just a couple of years beforehand with you Sharon and it was fucking traumatic so see so this car chase really unnerved me and ruffled me in the beginning when I saw it in the in the cinema in 2008 Mm. 
And what what the principle of my edit was, was if we have 10 shots in the space of five seconds, how about I remove six of those shots? So all we have are four, the four good ones that we actually need. Mm. If you remove the superfluous information that you don't need, your brain has time to adapt and work out what it's seeing and where people are. One of the problems with putting too many shots in during an edit is that it actually messes with time. If you see someone, like this happened during the plane sequence, when they're falling, they fall down, the plane's falling behind them, it seems like the plane's about to hit a thing, but then you see them for a few extra seconds, and then you cut to another angle, and then the plane hits the thing. But it honestly feels like time has stretched so that we can see these other shots. Mm. And there are other moments that I cut out that, that effectively warp what you're seeing and that if you just focus it just just trim a few extra out it feels like action reaction there was also the case of like completely pointless obstacles during the foot chase when he's uh, running under through the underground tunnels he runs up against a portcullis and then he runs backwards and then turns around and then runs in another direction and it's like the pace is going, oh my God, Bond is running, 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 running. Da, 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 da. Oh, he has had to stop. And then he's had to go. And now he's running, running, running. And it's like, you know what? If you just remove the portcullis bit and just have him rush off to the left, the momentum stays up. You aren't selling that the obstacle is really an obstacle. You're just making us stumble. Mm. There's a point during the plane chase where um, Camille says, I think we lost him. One second, not even one second later, it's like a half second, it's three frames later, he flies around and you get like a view of their plane from his point of view to illustrate we haven't lost him. But there's no time between, I think we lost him, hold the tension, oh shit, he's back. Yeah. If you remove, I think we lost him, then it's just keeping the momentum going. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, when M is... Just before they, they look at Dominic Green and they're sort of going through the bowels of MI6, um, someone says, we, we've scanned all of Dominic Green's money and we know where every single note that he's uh, um, using came from. And then the guy helping M says, she's not in the mood. And it's like, he's just shut that conversation down. Then they go through a door. But if you take out those two lines and they just go through a door which in my edit they did it just flows in there and they're bringing out dominic green's money anyway which they were talking about and and effectively what you've done there is remove an obstacle and then the surpassing of that obstacle mm. which happened in one two yeah i mean i can understand why they would do it that way in that foot chase at the beginning because part of what they're trying to re-establish is that that bond is still this bullish person that will charge at, at obstacles and sometimes that's really inappropriate for the environment that he's in mm. metaphorically as well as as in reality but i do know what you mean about when they're trying to recreate the pace and the uh, frenetic nature of the parkour scene in the first one, and they are, make no mistake about it, the, the lining up of what happens in the first, I would say certainly the first half hour mm. of Quantum of Solace almost exactly replicates uh, Casino Royale in terms of location changes and who's there and why they're there and what Bond does in that particular scenario. And with regards to the, the quick cut edits that make the time seem to 
um, stretch out. The other thing it does is it makes it feel like that episode of Futurama where they start losing time keeps chunks on slipping. of time. And, yeah. and you just get this kind of... It, it starts to feel baffling. You start feeling like there's something somewhere that you should have seen but didn't. Yeah. What it is is a lack of ability to build tension. Mm. Mark Forster wanted the film to be quick like a bullet, but there is a tension to Bond films and there is a tension to a lot of the the framework of the scenes he's pulling together. Mm. So, like, you can't really do an interrogation scene quick like a bullet. Yeah. That requires tension. Yeah. But the way he's cut it... It is quick like a bullet. And th- there are so many cuts to people r- running the horses and running the, the bulls and everyone in the crowd. Again, I trimmed a lot of those back so we could just stay focused on the room. Mm. Because another thing is, if your brain is shown something it can't quite identify, like there are a lot of, uh, there were a couple of times when like, there was a shape for a frame. And I'm like, what's that? If your brain's going, wait, what's that? It's already distracted from the next thing you see. Mm. Yeah. So I just cut out the bits that are like, what's that? So when Bond gets back to after the uh, foot chase, he just sees the um, medical apparatus on the floor and you get the context of the room. Mm-hmm. Before that, there was a, a shot for like a half second of like a blood bag on the floor. But it's like, hang on, because I don't, I haven't had an establishing shot of the room yet. Why would you start on that shot? Mm. It's like mental parkour. Your brain should be able to pick up smoothly what's going on around you. Bingo. Without constantly coming up against obstacles. The point of parkour is to get from A to B in the smoothest, most fluid way possible. Mm. If A is delusion and B is the hospital. <laughs> well, indeed. There's, there's a scene, and I actually... I. Blooming didn't write down which scene it was, which I'm annoyed at myself for. But I started writing down, ramp up the tension, ramp up the tension. And then my mind started going, when will the bass drop? When will the bass drop? When will the bass drop? And I was like, that's what he's doing. It's just going up and up and up and up. And and there is no pop. There is no... You sure? No. Because it suddenly cuts to another scene. It just stops. Yeah. Scene where Bond just talks to M in Tanner's. Uh, who's a, not Tanner? Mitchell. The scene where Bond just talks to M in Mitchell's apartment after Mitchell has betrayed her. Uh, he's her bodyguard, and he's the guy that Bond chases. It's not really established well at the beginning, no. uh, and then M's freaking out because effectively he was very close to her the whole time. He could have killed her at any point, and he didn't. And that should really have been much more about M feeling afraid and feeling like the rats are in the house. We could go somewhere with that, but unfortunately, and here's the thing, like everything that we could suggest, they couldn't really do. They could rely on a director and the actor who says, I am not a writer, to write some reshape existing scenes, but they couldn't write whole extra plot lines. Mm. They couldn't do this stuff, but the actual, the shots, the shot list of 
of just Bond turning up and she's on a rainy balcony and they go in and talk about Mitchell for about 42 seconds. There's like a shot every second. And it's like Bond, Bond and M, M on her own, Bond. Bond and M from a different point of view. Some bloke doing forensics. Wider shot, M. M from a different angle, Bond. They're just having a conversation, guys. Calm it down. Calm it the fuck down. You do, like, this required them to have that many camera setups. Mm. Part of this is on Forster. If he wanted it to be like a bullet, he's like, like, rather than having this be boring, so it's like two people shot from the side and, and saying, you know, okay, so uh, you got any leads? Yeah. So when do we start? You know, like, you know, rather than making it like that, let's have it dotted with 80 shots in 40 seconds. It's goddamn ridiculous. It's the bullet from the Kennedy assassination. It's all over the fucking shop. <laughs> Somebody pointed out the exceptionally overdone shot of Liam Neeson climbing over a fence in Taken 3, which it was 14 seconds. No, it's seven seconds long and it has 14 shots in it. 14 cuts. And that is to make a middle-aged guy climbing over a fence look like it's an exciting thing. Daniel Craig was in peak physical shape for this. He was even leaner and meaner than he was in Casino Royale. Mm. He had to really work on his running. He can do these things. You don't need to oversell it with the edit. It's goddamn ridiculous. And even if you were just trying to make the action scenes that ridiculously pacey, you don't have to do it in the conversation scenes. So my edit was just to take the edge off that, just to make it so that it still has that pace to it, but it doesn't have the extraneous information that can only confuse. I did a couple of other uh, little things. The uh, gun barrel, which they saved to the very, very end. Um, their statement at the end is, after he's dealt with Vesper's boyfriend, the treacherous guy, it sort of ends on a sad like piece of... Ve it's Vesper's music concluding... And then you get the gun barrel. And it's David Arnold finally taking the Bond theme for a ride. Again, same as he did at the end of Casino Royale. At the end of Casino Royale, he's finally Bond. At the end of Quantum of Solace, he's finally Bond. At the beginning of Skyfall, you're out of shape, 007. You're a fat, useless sack of crap. At no point... Was he actually James Bond? He goes from, I promoted you too early to, well, you passed it now. <laughs> you old bastard. <laughs> well, he did say double-O agents have a very short life expectancy. I'll tell you when he's James Bond, in the game Bloodstone. Mm. Only the game Bloodstone, which takes place after Quantum of Solace and before Skyfall. And it's funny I should mention that, because one of the things people fucking hate about this film... Bond fans in particular, is the song Another Way to Die uh, by Alicia Keys and Jack White from the White Stripes, which I think kind of does have a, like a funky, like it's got an appeal to it. It is not appropriate for this movie. Just, just, 
Imhotep and fun. That is not this movie. Do you think it would have worked for a more Bond? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Instead of all-time high mm. for Octopussy. It's just that Octopussy's all-time high really does sell how, like... Boring. Th- this is OAP action <laughs> movies. Like, if you're drawing a pension, you might like this. Mm, yeah. Or if you really like tennis. Mm. Or clowns. Ugh. Although Jarvis Cocker did do a good cover version of that on a uh, Bond celebration album. Funny how it always goes in love when you don't look, you find. But then we're two of a kind. We move as one. I think he accomplished this by leaning into how creepy the song is. However, I have heard Bond fans saying the Another Way to Die isn't too bad as a song. It's when they start scatting at the bridge that it just becomes intolerable. Yeah, no, it's it's way too languid for any Bond, frankly. But what I did for my edit was replace it with uh, I'll Take It All by Joss Stone from the uh, Xbox 360 and PS3 video game Bloodstone, which is now hard to come by, not backwards compatible, just basically difficult to play. And the models, when you play it, you're like, oh my God, Like we've really advanced with facial capture in the years since. It's like you're, he's a sort of a Daniel Craig looking gonk in the game. Although I do remember watching you play it and thinking, wow, that really looks like Judy Dench. Well, it, it doesn't look like Judy Dench. Not anymore, no. no. It's sort of a potato <laughs> that's been carved to look like Judy Dench. But, I mean, it had a really great system of, like, um, you take down two guys, like, you stealthily run up behind them and then you clobber them, and that sort of builds up your uh, gauge to do instant one-shot kills with, like, the slip, boom, slip, boom. And it, it had a great rhythm to it. I, I rate Bloodstone just below GoldenEye 64. And if you understand how much I played GoldenEye 64 and how much I wish they had released that version that was originally planned for 360, just a a spruced up version the way they did Perfect Dark, it was made. But Nintendo owned GoldenEye 64, and so they wouldn't allow it to be on Sony and Microsoft platforms. Microsoft 
had a prior agreement with Rare, so they wouldn't allow it to be on Sony and Nintendo systems. And Sony owned Bond, so they wouldn't allow it to be on Nintendo and Microsoft systems. So because these bunch of fuckers wouldn't play ball and cooperate, none of us got a thing that was finished and was really good. Fish and chips on my shoulder. Anyway. (laughs) But take it all from Bloodstone that I'm going to play for you now, folks has that raw intensity and it has that this is a thunderous revenge it's got that sense of falling and just not caring and it's very passionate and it's very kind of fatalistic Mm, yeah the the lyrics are very uh suggestive of real deep tissue loss Mm. In the character, and then that the way you laid it over the opening credit sequence, you get those lyrics combined with images of Bond wandering in the desert, totally lost. No one to shoot. Nobody to shoot. Surrounded by all of these women who keep dissolving into sand, and he can't get a solid grasp on any of them. He keeps aiming his gun around. There's this silhouette, like going. He's just so angry, and he's got no one to kill. It's it's a very good edit. If you go to YouTube, you can actually see a version of this that I did years ago. It's called Quantum of Solace. I'll take it all.
As long as I So yeah, that was, I think, for me, one of the most significant changes. The other that I made is, again, in the music. Shirley Bassey recorded a piece for this called No Good About Goodbye, which I'll play at the end. And it has this kind of... It's much more subdued. It's much sadder and more solemn. But it has kind of a a defiant brass about it. For the chorus. And it's got this refrain of which is in the film constantly David Arnold never riffs on Another Way to Die he always riffs on No Good About Goodbye and I use this over the end credits after the sad Vesper necklace close, cut to the credits and that's the song. And it was so seamless and fit with the music that Sharon had been listening to in the film. She'd forgotten that wasn't at all what played over Mm. the end credits. And it fits the end credits to the second, which makes me believe that's actually what they were going to do. And originally the, 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 the gunshot, the, the gun barrel was going to be there. Da, da, da. But if you play the Bond theme, like I said, the, the way that the David Arnold thing, it's it's kind of, hey, now he's Bond. But you've just finished and just found a sort of a, a, a an uneasy piece, but not really a catharsis at the end of Vesper's story, playing the brass there. It's literally the end music from Casino Royale. The name's Bond, James Bond. He didn't write a new one or reorchestrate a new one. They even play it in Spectre. When the rest of the score is Thomas Newman, he was like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'll leave this one to David. It's literally the same piece, returning you to this holding pattern for James Bond. Like John Barry nailed him in 1962, and he doesn't need to go anywhere beyond that. I, I told James Batchelor, and he said, no, 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 I have the brass. And it's like, we've heard the brass 24 times. Just let Shirley Bassey work. And I think it really, really works there. And I moved the gun barrel sequence to the beginning 
So that uh, over instead of the Columbia logo, you get sort of the the MGM and then this quiet like unnerving, and then you get the gun barrel without the and it's just and then there's this very quiet boom, which I queued it up to fit exactly on the gunshot. So it's like he's bombed, but he doesn't have that reassuring cacophony to mm. him. Yeah. He's about to explode. And I think that just set the tone for my version of the film. And I gotta say, I really like this version of Quantum of Solace. I think it captures all the things that are good about the film, smooths over the edges of everything that was problematic about the film, or, or at least annoying about the film. And while I can't add extra depth, and I never really can, mm. as with most of my best edits, it just allows the movie to get out of its own way. Yeah. Like maybe they rushed it a little bit too much and they weren't able to step back, really just give it a bit of breathing room. And it's, like I said, three and a half minutes shorter. There's one other significant bit that I actually trimmed back, but that'll be enough of me talking about the edit. I did notice that the... Um, Sequence when they're swinging upside down from that, um, like, careering crane thing in the, like, the art place, Boudoir, after he's um, he's chased down uh, Mitchell, uh, actually reminded me of uh, Don't Look Now. There is a significant moment, um, you, know, you know, we mentioned the, uh, the Venice sequence at the end of Casino Royale. There was a significant moment in Don't Look Now where... Um, Donald Sutherland almost dies falling off of some scaffolding after a rope accident, and it's it's frightening. And, uh, you know, that's around about the time when the uh, whole everything goes pear-shaped. One of our past listeners, Nick Ord, uh, wrote a whole piece on Don't Look Now and pinpointed that moment where Donald Sutherland almost dies and said, everything after that point in the film actually lines up with him actually dying and the rest is his purgatory so that's quite a significant way to then watch don't look now it is a magnificent nick rogue film not the only one we're going to be talking about this year because we all like we covered don't look now on a quick review a couple of years ago but we're going to be doing the witches at some point with victoria lunaby grieve uh, but this is bond's purgatory as well it's this it's his angry gehenna the scene when he goes to the opera house uh, and uh, sort of gets a little earpiece and starts earwigging on Quantum's dealings actually reminded me of a, um, a previous Bond film. I can't remember exactly which one it is, but they go to the UN or something, like the villain does, and he plugs in like a little thingy. Ah, it's live and let die. And then, like, plays a really loud noise into one person's headphones and kills them dead with that. He's this old crusty white guy and he's like, ah, that sounds like rock and or roll. I die. I honestly feel like, like when Bond starts sort of sneering into his uh, ear earpiece and getting uh, Quantum to react and get up huffily and, and walk away while he's snapping pictures of them. I really do wish he'd just sort of take out the little mic thing and just go <gasps> into it so that everyone goes, oh my God. <laughs> so like you basically then deafen the top 12 brass of Spectre at that point. <laughs> also keep your ears open when they're at the party 
I was like, I swear that's Guillermo del Toro's voice, but that's not Guillermo del Toro. I found out later that Guillermo del Toro did in fact, being a friend of Mark Forster, supply his voice, as did Alfonso Cuaron. So I'm assuming uh, he's the uh, guy who like asks for a Coke, please, or something along those lines. <laughs> I will have a Coke 007. Attention all Fox 5 Kids Club members, it's time for another wacky, wonderful contest. You could win a Flick Flack alarm clock. Send your name, address, and telephone number to Flick Flack Contest, the Fox 5 Kids Club. P.O. Box 1034, New York, New York, 10021. The bit where just after he's gotten everyone ruffled from Quantum and got them all moving, and then there's that sort of like, like there's a shootout and it's a running chase and it just pulls all the sound out. I really like that moment because it's just like Bond is now going through the motions. Like he, he doesn't care, he's being chaotic. And not giving us a cacophony is actually a really neat, stylish way of illustrating how off the rails he's gotten. Whilst at the same time seeming very self-possessed, wearing the tuxedo, he's still kind of a wild animal. There's a, there's quite a bit in this of, here's a trope that means one thing in old Bond movies, but it means something very different here. Mm. Um, in particular, I picked up on the... Um, what they do with alcohol in mm -hmm. this. I mean, it's it's not brand new. They started seeding it in Casino Royale, the fact that he goes for the whiskey when he's feeling particularly battered um, and, and needing to try and recenter himself. But if you look at the way he drinks in this, he's drinking whiskey at the interrogation at the beginning. Dude, you're on the job. No. When he goes to see Mathis, he grabs the wine off the table and pours himself a glass. And then when he's on the plane, he downs six Vespers. And then um, this is the first time we've really seen alcohol start to have an effect on yeah. him. Yeah, even the bartender's like, steady on, mate. He can't remember what's in a drink he invented. Yeah. And he's slurring and he's all over the place. And yet when Mathis offers him actual medication, he turns it down. Yeah. There's the tiniest hint of that in uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, Brosnan drinks when uh, he meets Paris because mm. she's stirring up old memories. Yeah. But he doesn't... Like I feel like Tomorrow Never Dies, he should have been so much angrier for the rest of the film after that. That would have actually flavoured it and like then his revenge on Rupert Murdoch would have been so justified. <laughs> you forgot the first rule of mass media, Then when he grabs that guy and sort of holds him over the roof, that's actually a reference to an old uh, Roger Moore kill, I think it's in The Spy Who Loved Me, where like, a guy grabs his tie and is sort of hanging backwards over a Cairo rooftop and Bond just goes Fum, and just like slaps his hand away and then he falls to his death. He asks the guy, who are you working for? And the guy's like, well, piss off, mate. You're working for Special Branch. You're a British agent. You can tell he has a British accent. He's got you hanging over a rooftop. I get that Bond is off the chain and he's killing people left, right and centre. The way this is framed is almost supposed to get Bond fans to say, well, it wasn't his fault. But, like, this Special Branch guy really is unhelpful at a time when being helpful might have kept him alive. But that repeated tendency of Bond to kill people that they need information from and actually yeah. killing them is precisely the wrong thing to do in this scenario 
it happens several times again in this one. Yeah. MD, it like specifically references it in the first one, and then that carries on, but then it pays off in the final scene because he doesn't kill Yusuf. Yeah. Honestly, I feel like they should actually have invoked the license to kill at that point. M's applying end of the day um, face face cream and sort of like almost trying to keep it on the uh, casual tip when she's like, Bond, you've got to come in. You just killed someone from Special Branch. That should bother you. Uh, it feels like Bond should then challenge her and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I thought I had a license to kill. I didn't realise it was a license to kill asterisk. Well, At yeah. which she should say, you have a license to kill, it's not an imperative to kill. Absolutely. You needed two to get your double O status. You're now in double figures. <laughs> According to this New Zealand thing, 250 casual acts of violence. Mm-hmm. So uh, the two Bond girls specifically, let's go with Strawberry Fields first because she gets disposed of far more quickly. What did you think of Gemma Arterton's performance and uh, positioning in this? I really liked her. I, I like the fact that they're, they're, again, widening the idea of that he's, he's part of a network. He's not a... Uh, lone wolf. He is somebody who's got employers and assistants and um, researchers and people who are there to back him up and he carves through them all casually like a hot knife through butter but they are, you know, he's got people who are there to support him and she's one of them. And I really like Gemma Arterton. I think it's a it's a great performance. I could have done with more of her but I I do quite like the the capsule presentation that she provides of this office-based element to the intensity that we're Mm. used to about this intelligence service. I think the shorthand with which he sort of walks into the hotel room, turns around and goes, I need to find the stationery. I think it might be on my cock. And... (laughs) (laughs) She's like, she rolls her eyes, but she still sleeps with him. (laughs) Again, I get that they're trying to make it like a bullet, but let her play hard to get for a half minute for just a moment. Just a, I mean, she's basically kind of that lady at the beginning of Goldeneye who was like, I've been sent here to evaluate you. Mm. And he doesn't really even get to ruffle her feathers before uh, like disarming her. Yeah. It, it just felt b- rote. But at the same time, it kind of fits with his he's doing this out of habit, but he's too new to this to really be doing it out of habit. Ah, but no. Okay, a lot of the the double O agent stuff is stuff that he's new to, but this relationship pattern, that is something that he keeps lapsing back into. Mm. That's One assumes new. he treated women like that prior to being a double O agent. Absolutely. And ultimately, what Fields is, to him, is an attempt to replay Vesper. She works for the government. Mm. She's got that kind of slightly prim way of doing things. I'm the money. He tries to roughshod... Every penny of it. He tries to run roughshod over her in the same way. But unlike Vesper, who pushed back, Fields caves quite far too easily. True. That uh, it was quite telling, actually, that uh, we were, uh, were watching the um, meeting between Bond and Vesper, and Willow was immediately, "Oh, he's such a pig! He's talking to her like that." But then when she reposted, mm. um, and actually they were sort of fencing back and forth with words, she went, "I love this woman." Mm-hmm. We want more of her, please. But the fact that it's it's not just the sex. The uh, the cover story that. Um, Uh, Fields has got set up, that their teacher's on sabbatical, that they're staying in this cheap-ass hotel. Bond can't bear it because he's got to be somewhere fancy. He just immediately turns round and and walks them to somewhere posher, which which is like taking it totally out of her hands. 
he does do the same thing with Vesper in the first one because they have this cover story that he immediately disposes of, but he's got a reason for doing it. Here, it feels like he's doing it just to be shitty, just to say, you are not in charge here, I am. And then he seduces her against her better judgment as well, making the whole thing about he's trying to re-establish his control over that situation, over the concept of, of having a relationship with somebody that he's supposed to be working with. It's a symptom of the syndrome that he's still playing out. Would it be fair to say, on some level, he's trying to fuck M? By proxy. This is a deep one, folks, or at okay. least it's it's quite a psychological I one. don't believe we can properly dissemble that one unless we do Skyfall as well. We already have done. We did Skyfall. Yeah. Can't go back. Can't go back to... Well, we could, but... I. No, there's much more of a mother, uh, yeah. son, queen and knight yeah. thing in that. In this one in particular, though, he's very much kind of, you can tell me whatever you want. I'm going to do my thing. In fact, I'm actually kind of, he actually only spends a little bit of the time on the run. Like, if you remember um, License to Kill, he gets that revoked really early on. Mm. Like It's because Felix Leiter gets uh, eaten, half eaten by a shark, and so he's on a roaring rampage of revenge. Yeah. I do think that there is an element through Craig's Bond story of he's terrible at relationships, with men as well as with women, but with women particularly. He is absolutely dire at handling anybody if he can't use sex. And when he says the thing about you want me to be half monk, half hitman, I'm sat there thinking, do you know, actually, I think that might... Try that for a bit. See how that feels. You want me to be a bishop and not a knight? Effectively, he needs to be able to... He can have far more rewarding relationships if he removes sex from the table. And his relationship with M is one that is without sex. Ultimately, his relationship with Camille ends up being one that is without sex. And those uh, connections that he forms are better for him than the women that he casually ends up killing by mistake. It is noteworthy that Bond breaks the rules and goes against uh, his orders repeatedly throughout the series mm. and never never directly suffers for it in a way that a, a specifically male, especially middle-aged audience would identify as him being actually served a fair penalty for his transgressions. Mm. He's always right in the end. Like, he comes back after having completed his mission. They're like, oh, well, you went off the radar, you went rogue, and uh, I suppose you're still the best that there is. So off you go to your next adventure. Placating of this the, the maverick mm. in male cinema, male action cinema specifically, has led to several generations of men who don't feel like they need to be accountable mm. for shit behaviour. Yeah. Well, the, the, the trouble is that what that framework is trying to put across in a fictional context is that when the ends are very important, then the means you use to get there shouldn't be as restricted as living in a world of red tape and bureaucracy often makes people feel. The problem is that when you try and translate that into the real world and what you end up doing is actually just chaotic means because you want to be a rebel. Okay, so you're saying judge you on your results. Show me your results because I can guarantee you in the real world what that results in is an awful lot of fuck ups. 
It's it weirdly repeats the end of the first one as well because at the end of the first one he says you don't have to worry about me mm. to M and M goes are you sure? Mm. I feel like I kind of do. I feel like though. I kind of do. And at the end of this he says you don't have to worry about me mm. and M says are you sure? And then at the end of both you get the David Arnold da da he's James Bond and at the beginning of Skyfall after accidentally being shot in the shoulder M then does need to worry about him. Yes, indeed. I mean, I do think that at the end of this one, he is starting... There is a healing process going on there that she is able to witness and document because he's got a different kind of relationship with Camille. Obviously, M isn't party to that, but that's there. We see that. The fact that his interactions with Yusuf and Corinne play out very differently than what he'd intended. He's He kind of cuts himself off from the concept of revenge to begin with. And so all of that rage that your usual revenge fantasy would be about externalising, that's Camille's journey. Mm. That's not his. He's holding it all in. For, for I don't know, ideological reasons? He says to Mathis, I don't think the, the dead care about revenge. Is that the reason that you're not of trying to avenge Vesper? Because that's preventing you from externalising this incredible anger that you're feeling at yourself, at her, at everything that was going on around you. But ultimately, his solution to this is to save Corinne from the same fate. He stops that story from repeating itself. That is a far more constructive way of resolving his feelings about that situation than simply killing Yusuf. Corinne is the Canadian uh, intelligence agent at the end who is being seduced and wooed and schmoozed by Vesper's ex-boyfriend. Uh, and effectively, he's playing the same moves on her. He's even given her the same necklace because he's just like, I'll just keep doing the same thing over and over again. It worked before. And there's this disgust in Bond as he uh, tells uh, tells them both about this. But then, you know, he just sort of tells Corinne to go. And there's this very, very quiet thank you from her as she, again, with her eyes sort of works out, oh, I really am just another in a line of women that has been fucked over by this guy. And it's, again, it's a really neat moment. Mm. And I think, frankly, getting more women in Bond films who can act and perform excellently physically because they're not going to be given that many great lines. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, allowing them to have more than one dimension is a start. Yeah, the... Um, uh, the the woman in Skyfall who uh, Silver ends up shooting with an old fucking pistol. Mm. Uh, you know, she had a, a fantastic um, kind of like a, a tragedy about her and was then ridiculously cruelly snatched away from the film because they're like, well, let's just make the villain seem villainous by killing the woman. Mm. See, that felt almost like they were trying to do Solange again, but it's not anywhere near mm. as good. Similarly, Monica Bellucci's the same in uh, Spectre and they didn't kill her. So mm. progress, question mark? More Monica Bellucci. Yeah, I, always I would a good have liked idea. That yes, that's that's always a good okay. Idea. So Camille, what did you think of her in in this? The uh, Olga Kurilenko um, uh, played her. That she honestly wasn't in much mm. more than this. She was in Hitman, which is fucking terrible. Mm. Playing a very similar-ish kind of character, yeah. really. Um, I one of the things that hit me immediately this time was how bloody young she is. Oh yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know how old the actress was, but how young the character is is being presented. Like, however old she was when her family died, it's almost like a part of her has just stopped at that age. She dresses in a way that is uh, slightly 
juvenile and vulnerable. She'd have been about 29 at the time. Yeah. So not a spring chicken. Okay. Yeah. But but she, you know what I mean though, about the way she puts herself across is somebody That seems weird is... sort of saying that about a woman. That feel, I feel like fucking sport from Taxi Driver calling her a little piece of chicken. <laughs> Let's say spring chicken about dudes. Okay. But yeah, she's not... She's she's She comes off as inexperienced... And I think Bond says something to her about training at some point. So she's obviously not... She knows what she's doing when it comes to firearms and fighting. Yeah. But she is not well-versed in the ways of the world. And she's certainly not well-versed in how um, uh, Dominic Green and his network of deposed dictators and um, exploitative corporations operate. That is not her field at all. She's way out of her depth. There are times she behaves incredibly rashly and almost gets killed for it. When yeah. she starts basically turning, she basically kind of crashes his party and goes, oh, you don't want to fucking deal with this guy. He'll whip you off. And then the rest of them are like, oh, well, I'll, we'll take our business elsewhere. And Dominic Green turns to her and kind of, I just lost a bajillion dollars because of you. <laughs> and then like takes her to a, well, at the time they're on a very high um balcony and and uh, he's like well maybe you'll take a tumble and it's like whoa you just like she's not even after him she's after general medrano the guy who killed her parents and then burned her house down and raped her mother my god but then she has this she seems to have this kind of naive ideal that all she needs is 5 minutes alone with this guy and she's going to kill him yeah. and he's three times her size brutal mean and, like, just visually, you can see she doesn't stand a chance, which is one of the reasons why it's so satisfying when she does end up killing him. Yeah. I took a little, uh, a bit, a few of the frames out of their final uh, battle. He, he was much more rapey I and lascivious. about that. It did feel different, slightly different from how I remembered it, and mm. I, I did wonder if he'd taken it I out. also took uh, uh, several seconds out of the uh, scene where he was just prior to this att- attacking and raping a girl. Um, there was also like a, a really overt bit where the girl sort of got up. You couldn't see her face, but you could see right up her skirt at her pants. Splendid. As she then ran out. And then um, Camille kind of shoves her to one side, and that's the last we ever see of this woman mm-hmm. who is handcuffed tottering around the place in an exploding hotel that is deserted in the middle of the desert. Mm -hmm. She dead. That poor woman. That poor woman. They're going to kill that poor woman, man. Poor girl. (laughs) Was she in there before before you you baked? baked. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. um. But yeah, the um, one thing that I really liked was there's... When he first meets Camille, he comes out of whatever building it is that he's in and she pulls up in the car outside and he gets in. And then they repeat that later on when she turns up again, when he's he doesn't exactly know what he's going to do next. And she's gone off and then kind of turns around and comes back to him. And I was wondering what it was that draws them back together, particularly from her perspective. Because he, at this point, has nobody to fall back on. He's got, he's like, there's no one else to support him at this stage. M's basically disavowed him for the time being. Mm-hmm. Mathis is dead. Mm-hmm. His his safety platforms have vanished. All there is left is Camille. But her reason for coming back to him is that ultimately she's still got this revenge mission in mind. She can't do it without him and she's recognised that fact. She needs that mentor. Ironically, she needs him to replace the father that never would have taught her to do this. But that sort of guiding hand is is what she kind of wordlessly asks for from him and 
gets what she needs from him, not what he needs from her to give yeah. to her. It was refreshing that they didn't have sex. She did point out, like, uh, she had never really seen most of the Bond films. She comes from the Ukraine, and they were difficult to get hold of there. I would imagine during the Cold War, that wasn't exactly uh, on the TV all the time. But they gave her a DVD box set, and she particularly liked Tomorrow Never Dies and Michelle Yeoh, because she did all her own stunts. Do you know what? I actually put down on here, she feels like a, a blend of Melina and Waylin. Yeah. Yeah. Um... So yeah, I mean, frankly, I think Kurilenko did a fantastic job. She was, of the thousand or so women that they uh, interviewed, one of the only ones who wasn't nervous. Mm. And when she first turns up to sort of you know, like get in to Bond and, and he's effectively um, playing a guy he doesn't even know the role of, who's apparently uh, supposed to shoot her, um, she has kind of a like, you know, just take charge attitude, even though she is, she does seem like she is deliberately positioned as quite, young mm. even though she is in her uh, late 20s and during during the filming but she kind of just doesn't take any shit off anybody she she's very abrupt with the way she talks to people and and she is kind of rash and foolish in in how she escalates things much too quickly mm. she's very single minded yeah and you kind of wonder how she's managed to be able to keep her head down during during this without um sort of giving away her own particular intentions. Mm. Well, obviously she did. That's why Dominic was trying to have her killed. Yeah. Notably as well, just before this, when Bond kills the guy who he's supposed to be investigating, in contrast to the early scene in Casino Royale with, made you feel it, did he? When, like, Bond just sort of stabs him in the leg, stabs him in the neck, and then just kind of holds him while the guy gurgles underneath him. And just Bond sort of looking around like a bird in a kind of a, yep, nope, nope. No soul in there, kind of. That's his cutting off face. Yeah. And that, I, I don't know whether that was really sold in the film to the audience, that, that there is a, a, a post hoc ergo propter hoc because of the deadening experience of Casino Royale, he can't stop. And this doesn't affect him anymore. Or if it does, he's burying it so deep, he's not allowing it to actually process. It, it, it does affect him, but not on a level that he can recognise anymore, because that that suppression... This is something that, that again, I said this in, about Casino Royale, Craig gets this across brilliantly. That suppression of emotion is not something that happens by mistake. It's not something that happens... That, that you know you just you're exposed to this thing and it's it just happens you do that on purpose or you start off doing it on purpose and then eventually it becomes such a reflex reaction that you can't um you can't not do it you can't control it anymore and ultimately he's deadened himself to death to the point where when it happens to somebody he cares about, he doesn't know how to respond. And we talked about this, that expression of uh, when somebody dies, he gets this look that he needs to hit somebody. He needs to fight that out. The adrenaline that, that comes up in him needs to find expression through something and he looks like he wants to get into a fight. Again, the, the fact that there's progress in this character the fact that when Mathis is shot, his in immediate instinct is to go after the perpetrator and Mathis says, don't, you know, I don't want to be alone, stay with me, don't go. And he does, he, he holds Mathis and sits with him as he dies. 
which is not what it's in his instinct to do, but he is able to do that and create a, however brief and however trivial, personal connection with him by just checking in with whether Mathis was his real name or not. And... And, but once that's over and Mathis is dead, he gets that same look on his face. It's it's more subtle, but it's the same look as when Vespers died and he wants to beat the shit out of something. But he's wandering in the desert alone yeah. and figuratively speaking with no one to shoot. Exactly. And again, when he faces off with uh, with Dominic and he has his, his villain moment, he doesn't kill him. After Mathis dies, another piece that I cut out. This is one of the only few like bits that actually lasted a you know longer than a few seconds. He actually throws him in a dumpster. It just cuts very abruptly to after Mathis dies in the street. He just goes thunk, and uh, Camille looks at Bond with disgust and says, "He was your friend." And uh, Bond looks at Mathis's corpse and says, "He wouldn't have cared, or he wouldn't have minded." And it play continues to play the Vesper music when Bond then goes through his wallet and then tosses it aside after he's got all the information and then there's a slow dissolve to the car. I cut straight to the car to to just take away that extra hardness, to make it more of a, like he's slowly graduating towards being able to be a bit more of a human being again. Because at least in this version of things, I, I kind of that there is humanity in him. He's not just a machine in Skyfall. He's, he's, uh, the, the three of these films are a decent trilogy with a mismanaged middle section. I think Casino Royale and Skyfall are both excellent films. Um, and with what I've done to uh, Quantum of Solace, I feel like it just, it, it serves both sides now to illustrate Bond going from brand new agent to having to say goodbye to the M that, that brought him into the world. Mummy mm. was very, very bad. bad. Yes. So just uh, taking out that crass bit of chucking Mathis in a dumpster mm. then doesn't step on the, uh, the quiet... I mean, the Vesper music continues to play yeah. and it illustrates that he's being inhuman at that point and it just felt sour and it smelled like the garbage. Yeah. Just another, just to, just to mention another one of those obstacles that sort of happens but then doesn't. Dominic Green's pudding bowl haircutted Gareth Keenan mm. guy. Yes. Like after he he gets General Medrano to sign over the water, um, he's like, "You're asking me for way too much money for this," and he's like, "Yeah, well, if you uh, don't sign it, you'll wake up with your balls in your mouth and your willing replacement standing over you." And then his uh, his middle manager sort of leans over on the side and goes, "He's trying to get low repub. What have you done?" And when this hotel, which is basically just a series of bombs, <laughs> very neatly arranged in a hotel shape, I mean, it's more—it's f- just so much fire. When the Dominic Green and his lackey are trying to escape, Dominic stops for a half second, stands his lackey still, and then raises his arm up with a gun in a kind of as soon as Bond comes around the corner, you shoot him. I counted. It cuts to Camille fighting the general upstairs for 20 seconds, Bond rounds the corner, and then the explosions which have been happening for a long time 
explode Gareth Keenan holding his gun. So Bond is like, oh my god, I'm gonna get shot. No, actually he gets taken out by an explosion, which is very convenient. Mm -hmm. But if you take out just the bit where it's like, you stop and then point the gun, then you see this lackey turn, like seemingly like he's about to shoot Bond and he's he gets acting on his own initiative as opposed to being folded and molded like morph. There's almost no point having, oh my god, there's a, a trap waiting for our hero, and then the trap springs itself because of luck. That's pointless. But then when he fights Dominic Green, like, we've already seen Bond fight so many people savagely, and he's very, very good at it, but it's, it's messy and brutal. When Green, who's like four foot nothing, <laughs> Like, with the best will in the world, Matthew Almeriac could not beat Daniel Craig at the peak of his physical abilities, no matter how tired Bond is. He comes at him with a fire axe. I shortened that sequence as well, because mm. remember when Mystique fought Wolverine in the original X-Men? I was like, yeah, that would take about four seconds. <laughs> like, they really were trying to sell you that Mystique's this amazing fighter, and like, Wolverine is made of knives and has a healing factor. Yes. Good luck uh, with that. Mystique's advantage in any fight with Wolverine is the ability to stay away from Wolverine. She's very nimble. Yeah, her thing is turning into other people you wouldn't expect and going, Mystique went over that way, my friend Wolverine. Wait a minute, Cyclops isn't my friend. Shunk! Yeah. Snicked, bub! You wouldn't even need to do that, though. It's Wolverine. He it can smell, smell it's not And her. he did! But yeah, just, uh, I, I just shortened the uh, fight. And it, it, it ended right, and it ended quickly with him hacking into his own foot with a that, fire axe. Right, okay. Unnecessarily so, violent? No, no, no. <laughs> this, is, this is a crucial part of a thought I had about that last scene with him. So there's a riddle about uh, a man's in the desert and he has two enemies. One of them fills his water bottle with poison. The other one shoots a hole in the water bottle so that it all, all the poison runs out and the guy dies of thirst. So which one of them killed him? And obviously the solution to the riddle is the one who shot the hole in the bottle because if it had been the other one, he'd have died of poison. But the thi when I was looking at Dominic Green stood in the middle of the desert, pathetically watching Bond drive away. After having like, given him a can of right, oil to drink. So, out, so who's killed him? Is it Bond for giving him nothing but oil to drink when he's dying of thirst? Is it the member of Spectre stroke Quantum who finds him and puts two bullets in the back of the head? Or is it in fact himself? Because if he'd been there and survived much longer, that foot would have got horribly infected and he'd have died anyway. Yeah, I do wonder how... Uh, like, I feel like in an arid desert environment it would have been slightly less liable to kill him no, immediately. No, it would have got full of sand. Full of sand. All sand. That is not... He's, if, if he reaches the edge of the desert, that foot is hmm. gone. <laughs> Chop it off with the old fire axe. <laughs> Indeed. Um, ultimately, I think the the person who killed him is Bond for stranding him out in the desert. All well, the yes. rest of the stuff is circumstantial. Absolutely, it's the old thing about you don't you do not take a man's horse. Yeah, he's out in the middle uh, of, uh, of the desert without a horse or a hat or shoes. <laughs> it is not going to go well for him. Oh, this one's filling up with blood. I probably could do without this one. Anyway. It, oh, actually, yeah, quick question about um, when Green is hanging off the building. He, um, there's... 
it cuts he pulls away. him up by his hair. <laughs> it cuts away from Camille fighting the general. Yeah, and you and you hear the bullet. You yeah, hear the, the gunshot. And he goes ha. And he says ha. You lost. Sounds like you lost another one. How does he know that's Bond's personal nemesis? It's very specific. It could just have been Camille shooting the general. Which it was. Yeah. Weird. But yeah. But, I mean, specifically, that's to goad Bond into killing him there. But that's what I mean. But he doesn't. Why does Dominic know that Bond is so touchy about girls he hangs out with getting killed? Well, he specifically killed uh, Strawberry. Hmm. And he knows about Vesper, right? He works for Quantum. Oh, uh, yeah, I suppose so. Okay. Fine. Who are a, uh, a subsidiary of... Uh, <laughs> You laugh. They are literally referred to in the notes as a subsidiary of Spectre. <laughs> Selling your organs <laughs> for fun and profit. Affiliated but legally distinct from. <laughs> Selling your blood and organs for fun and profit. And also Little Sweetie Cupcakes, a subsidiary of Quantum. We have fingers in many pies, Mr. Bond, and I do mean that literally. Fucking yikes. <laughs> this is blank. This is blank. They are the hands of the new Swiss watch. With children in mind, they teach the time. Flip-flap is water resistant. Flip-flap is sugar resistant. Former SAS types with easy smiles and expensive watches. Rolex. Flip flack. Beautiful. But again, the the scene when he goes to get, uh, rescue Camille in the room and, and get her out of the fire, like he does, he just like throw Dominic out into the desert by his hair. Pretty much. Or something. Drops him out of the window. Yeah, but still, Dominic fares better than that poor woman who was uh, being assaulted earlier. Well, yeah, by the time they blow themselves out of the hotel, he's several hundred yards ahead of them. I like to think that because we, like, you know, in movie rules, if you didn't see the body, it didn't happen. She got far away from there and will, in fact, turn up in Bond 6 when the new Bond comes back <laughs> and either help or hinder him. Mm. Anyway, um... But yeah, he's um, Camille starts to uh, to regress to uh, uh, a terrified child because uh, she's remembering her home burning down and the uh, scars on her back. Uh, uh, we keep getting shown as visual testimony to uh, the trauma she's been through, and there is, as you say, a very nurturing, almost fatherly um, approach that he uh, he has to her here, and she's effectively at this point asking him to kill her so that she doesn't burn to death. It's very dark and then he sees yet another thing that can explode so that will create a window for them to escape to but very specifically sees that window of escape for both of them as a positive mm -hmm. and we can both get out of this and they effectively escape from hell together yeah, yeah. and when they are making their way away from all of this and they're sat in the car, she has that great line, and Kurilenko's delivery on this is fantastic, when she says to him, he's dead, what now? What do I do now? Because ultimately that's what this whole thing, this whole film, has been Bond asking himself. She's dead, what now? Yeah. 
And again, the uh, I, I like how measured that finale is. For a start, here, rather than just killing uh, Green brutally and quickly, he does it in a way that's not especially satisfying in the immediate, nor is it cold and like bird-like, like I mentioned before, like just uh, like a Terminator. Just <laughs> he sets him up for astonishing levels of pain and it's 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 pretty sadistic but it doesn't have that kind of the immediacy that he's been using up to date so it it like even if it is dark as hell it illustrates he's moving on from just the immediate well this thing's in my way so i'm gonna kill it yeah it's a little bit i'm not gonna kill you but i don't have to save you i mean he is killing him no no but, As we established, yeah. he's killing him in several different ways. But it's like he's moving a notch away from just killing. The fact that there is the tiniest chance that he will somehow survive this edges it sideways of just a cold-hearted murder. Yeah. Only just. It's a smidgen of progress. And then he's back to it in... The next film. It's it's difficult to tell any kind of story with Bond that feels lasting because the next director and the, will will come along and the fact that they kept on producer Michael G. Wilson and uh, uh, writers Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, and Paul Haggis. Yes, the Paul Haggis, director of Crash, the uh, racist through a few bad apples movie. Also, the uncredited writer of Terminator Salvation. Uh, but the fact that they've kept on the same writing team and producing team, like, <laughs> effectively, what they've done with Bond is a long-form version of the Harry Potter films. Mm-hmm. You know how they sort of kept the same crew the whole way through the years? The, the set designer for Bond, this was the first new set designer for, like, 20 years. They'd had the same guy over and over again. Mm. Well, I would imagine a lot of that's to do with the fact that they film it at, or, or did film it at, is, do they film it at Elstree? Oh, no, they go to different locations all over the, oh, the world. Okay. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Then. Peter was, Lamont was the... I was the thinking pro- a lot of the, the design crew and, and the, the construction teams and everything would all have been in-house. Yeah. Uh, during the Roger Moore and uh, Sean Connery eras, yeah, there was a lot of kind of filming at Pinewood mm-hmm. and uh, Elstree and doing a lot of, uh, like, they, they would double... Uh, you know, affordable British places for uh, exotic locales and anywhere that was interior. Mm, yeah. That way you, you save a lot of money. But mm. uh, yeah. It does baffle me that sometimes, though. When I was looking at the World War Z uh, Wikipedia page, it said originally they'd planned to film it in Royal Tunbridge Wells. We lived in Tunbridge Wells. You can't do zombie films there. <laughs> we'll CGI the zombies in later. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was Peter Lamont uh, who had worked on... Uh, he was production designer on 18 previous Bond films. So that's most of them. Mm. That's the lion's share of them. And he retired after Casino Royale and uh, forced to hire Dennis Gassner in his stead. Yeah. Having admired his work on The Truman Show and the Coen Brothers films. He worked on Barton Fink. Road to Perdition, which has Daniel Craig as a little Weasley bastard. It's Road to Position is uh, John Wick without a dog but with a son. We've drawn Judge Snyder. Is that bad? Well, he's had it in for me ever since I kind of ran over his dog. You did? Well, replace the word kind of with the word repeatedly and the word dog with son. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, and The Golden Compass, which has Daniel Craig as less of a Weasley bastard. Oh, my God. And Blade Runner 2049. Which... Daniel Craig is not in. And 1917. This guy, Dennis Gassner, 
sure can design the hell out of a production. We could talk about Felix Leiter's part in the film as well. Once again, slow burn acted by Jeffrey Wright. Rather more pertinently, the CIA's interest in Dominic Green aiding in a hostile takeover of Bolivia. That puts the CIA in a horrendous light, though they kind of pin it on the bad apple played by David Harbour. I'd really like to see the Bond films in future not making any bones over the filthy shit that governments and intelligence agencies have been up to for a long, long time, and how many people suffer and die as a result. But story for another show. School of Movies is brought to you by Patreon, where throughout the month of October we're going to be covering the movies of the Halloween series that we haven't yet done. The Return of Michael Myers, The Revenge of Michael Myers, The Curse of Michael Myers, and The Good One, which doesn't have Michael Myers at all, Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, which we recommend you see. It's messed up. As always, our top tier patrons are... Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksch, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. A massive thank you to them and all of our patrons. And speaking of thank yous, Listen to this final section of Quantum of Solace. It's a really taut scene. It's kind of the opposite of that one at the end of The Born Supremacy where Jason shows up to relieve the daughter of two people he killed. Here he's confronting a man who uses women and who turns a blind eye to their grisly fates, which makes us think of Solange, Strawberry and Vespa. So this is the end of a two-movie arc. This is why these two were really good to cover. They're building a character here. Bond is faced with a man who possesses negative traits he wants to take responsibility for in himself. And he despises him and has every reason to kill him. But he doesn't, indicating at least to M that he's got himself under control, he's moved forwards. But listen out as the lady leaves the scene. Watch her face, she does some fantastic physical acting with no lines as her opinion about the man beside her changes. And then she whispers to Bond as she leaves, thank you. And that's what we're gonna leave you with, followed by No Good About Goodbye, sung by Shirley Bassey, which is how this film really should have ended. You're Canadian? You work in Canadian intelligence? It's all right, I know you do. And knowing this man, I'd guess you have access to some very sensitive material, which you're going to be forced to give up. His life will be threatened, and because you love him, you won't hesitate. It's a beautiful necklace. Did he give it to you? 
Yeah, we'll just like it. He gave it to a friend of mine. Someone very close to me. Your name is? Corinne. Corinne. Corinne, I suggest you leave now. You contact your people and you tell them to check their seals. They have a leak. Do it now, please. This man and I have some unfinished business. still alive? He is. I'm surprised. Did you find what you were looking for? Yes. Good. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. They found Green dead in the middle of the Bolivian desert of all places. Two bullets in the back of his skull. They found motor oil in his stomach. Does that mean anything to you? Wish I could help. You'll be glad to know I straightened things out with the Americans. Your friend Leiter's been promoted. He replaced Bean. Well, then the right people kept their jobs. Something like that. Congratulations, you were right. About what? About Vesper. Ma'am. Bond? I need you back. I never left.
how much you can give Only a fool forgets to live An easy thing to say The past 